Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm talking to George Mason University Professor of Economics and New York Times bestselling author Brian Kaplan. Brian was also the show's inaugural guest, so if you haven't already, please check out episode one for our previous conversation. And please forgive some of the audio quality issues in this episode. Brian was speaking to me from Italy with a less than stellar internet connection, although everything does come through audibly in the end. Today, Brian and I are discussing his new book, How Evil Are Politicians? Essays in Demagoguery. Brian and I discuss cognitive biases, power hunger, FDR, we talk about Hitler and World War II, about Vietnam, and much, much more. This is my conversation with Brian Kaplan. Today I'm speaking with our first returning guest, friend of the show, Brian Kaplan. Brian, how is Italy? How's your family? And how are you this morning? I'm doing great today. Italy is really great, although the traffic is maybe the most horrifying I've ever seen in my life. And the hygiene of the city could be a bit better, but we are having great food. And uh, the mountains here are some of the most amazing I've ever seen. Beautiful. Well, I'm hoping to go to Europe in July. Probably we'll be in Rome for a bit of that. Your new book and your second collection of blog posts was just released. This one is called How Evil Are Politicians? Essays in Demagoguery, which is a delightfully provocative title. Can you say broadly what it's about and what connects the essays in this book together? Demagoguery is this ancient notion of a leader who says a bunch of things that sound good but are false in order to gain power while making society worse. I think that basically describes almost all politics as it's practiced around the world, whether in democracies or dictatorships, almost regardless of who's in power. I have a lot of essays that I've written over the last 17 years related to this theme. And what I wanted to do in this book was to bring the very best of these essays together. So during those 17 years, I wrote several thousand posts. And my idea was to take about the top 5% of those and then cut them into books by around the, uh, books by theme. And I noticed, wow, I have a whole lot of posts about demagoguery, about politicians and how they actually operate. And this is the, this is what became the book. You describe in one of the essays what you think a demagogue is and what precisely demagoguery is, and maybe there's more than one definition. So what is what is social desirability bias? It's a concept that I you write about a lot, and how does it relate to demagoguery? Social desirability bias is the psychological concept that most deserves to be discussed a lot more. It's well-established in psychology, but... It's not that people never talk about it, but I say it is such a powerful tool for understanding almost any area of human life, but especially politics. It's real simple. Social desirability bias just means that when the truth is ugly, people lie. And when the lies become ubiquitous enough, people start to believe absurd things. The simplest version of things like, am I fat? There's only one socially acceptable answer to, am I fat? No, no, of course not. You look great. That's you know, one example, but you can also see this in things like, did you vote? Did you vote in the last election? Did you go to church last Sunday? If you go and compare the answers that people say to the reality, you realize, well, people are lying and in a, the expected direction. They're exaggerating their tendency to do the thing that is socially approved. 
There are lots of other examples of how this plays out. But what I say is that it's most obvious in politics. If you just listen to the way that politicians talk, the whole style of rhetoric revolves around replacing ugly truths with pretty lies. And they say, this is really what demagoguery is especially about. So every time you open your mouth, say, what do people want to hear? What do they want to hear? What would sound good? And never asking yourself, really, what's actually true? What would really work? Is there anything that is relevant here that is bitter to hear, but nevertheless relevant? One very simple example of this is just think about how any politician argues in favor of a war. Have you ever heard any politician in, from any country say, here's a war that I think that we ought to do. There's a 50% chance it will make things better. 30% chance it will make no difference. 20% chance it will make things worse. Those are good odds. Let's proceed. No politician argues for a war in that way, which sounds like an honest argument. Instead, they'll say, as long as we work together, there will be absolute victory. We can be rest assured of this. History proves that as long as Italians work together, we always win. That's the kind of thing that a politician who wants a war says. One, one of your essays, you talk, you talk a little bit about that. And you talk about how, well, you know, if you were honest and you could say something like, we have a 50% chance of making things better and, you know, the odds you just gave, okay, it leans slightly in our favor. Well, no one's going to get riled up for that. And you retort, well, sure, but if that's all you have to offer, why are you so concerned to get people riled up? Yeah, it's a very simple point. You know, politicians, on the one hand, there's the idea of like action absolutely is essential. On the other hand, well, if I would just told the truth, people wouldn't be interested. It's like, hmm, well, maybe they wouldn't be interested because if you told that this, the truth doesn't actually warrant the kind of aggressive action that you favor. And for a politician, you say, yes, but what good is it to me if there's no aggressive action? What's the point of power except to exercise to do something with it to get my way? And that's where I'm waiting to say, aha. This isn't really about fixing the world. It's about you wielding power and getting to assert your authority over humanity. And that's what I think is mostly going on in politics. One of the main things that I talk about is the role of power hunger in politics. People very rarely talk about it. And yet, if you know human history, you realize look, almost all of human history is leaders waging wars, trying to seize as much territory and population as they possibly can regardless of what it does to the populations they're actually taking over. You know, most of human history, you see, look, it's you know, one monstrous dictator, warlord after another, conflicting enormous harm so that they can be the top dog. And the question is, what do you think this motive disappeared under once Western democracy showed up? The human nature suddenly changed for the first time, and now our leaders are nice people who just want to help others? That sounds almost impossible to believe. You know, the story that makes a lot more sense is that the, the, the personality traits of politicians, their motivations, the same as ever, but in a new system, they have to pretend to have different feelings than they used to, in, again, in order to gain and hold power. Do you think that power hunger is a significantly bigger motive than something more mundane like prestige hunger or idealism? So here's a nice way to understand why power hunger is actually what's crucial. I mean, prestige is, you know, I would just say, but just you know, like a more general concept, you have to say power is one kind of prestige, 
But the kinds of people that go into politics, they don't want just any old kind of prestige. If you said, hey, okay, you can resign from power, but you can be the world's greatest chess player. I don't think they'd be too excited about that. They want specifically political power. As to why we should think that it's prestige rather rather power hunger rather than idealism, here's a, a really strong example. It's very unusual for Supreme Court justices to resign, even when their own party is definitely in power. And if they resigned, they could go and assure there would be a similar Supreme Court justice on the bench for the next 40 years. Instead, Supreme Court justices usually serve until they die. If they don't want to relinquish what? Right? Obviously power. So you just think you're a Supreme Court justice, you're 85 years old, your party is in control, but like, see, I could resign and then I'd be replaced by someone similar to myself, but God, no, I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to have to serve until I, until I kick the bucket. And you know, you think about it, regardless of your ideology, you think you want to be replaced by someone of similar ideology. That's what an idealist would do. If those ideals motivated you, you would say, ah, oh, well, it's better for the cause if I step aside. This hardly ever happens. Instead, people cling to power with both fists, and then they die. And then often this means that the other side gets it. But as long as they were alive, they got to retain power. And what's true for the Supreme Court, I think it's really true for almost all politicians. What good is our victory if I am not the instrument of victory? Not including contemporary political figures, who do you think is a, a decent candidate for um, one of the more skilled American political demagogues? They're top notch. They're top notch. But let's see, who are some of the really good ones? So, in terms of you know, really, alternately, really bad ones. Yeah, let's yeah. See. You don't have yeah, to yeah, approve well, of their goals. Probably the best example of an American demagogue is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's someone who really knew almost nothing about economics, right? His actual understanding of the world was poor, but his understanding of human nature and what people wanted to hear, very strong. He broke the long-standing tradition of not running after serving two terms in office, served for 13 years. During this time, what did he accomplish? Well, he gained the presidency when the economy was in a disastrous situation, and it really stayed in a disastrous situation, I would say, for his entire term in office. Um, after the war, unemployment went down, but it was still a horrible situation for actual American living standards. Uh, when he gained power, what did he do? He had very little knowledge of economics. He just started trying to do things that sounded good. And so in the midst of terrible unemployment, let's go and create an aggressive trade union movement to push wages up further. You know, even very basic economics, like, look, when there's high unemployment, the last thing you want to do is to push wages up. It's a sign there's a labor surplus. Wages need to come down when there's high unemployment, but nevertheless, pushes through very aggressive changes in American labor law, pushing things in the opposite direction combined with a whole lot of feel-good slogans that people still remember to this day, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Hmm, what about aggressive economic illiteracy at the top? Do we have to fear that? Foreign policy, of course, uh, <laughs> what eventually happens is there's the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor and the U.S. spends four years fighting this terrible war. Uh, but again, you know, people say, oh, well, he, you know, he you know, got us out of the war, you know, got us out of the depression, yes, with this horrible war, which again, like you know, did did eliminate unemployment uh, in ways which, again, are very economically predictable, but in terms of living standards for Americans are very poor. And again, like, well, what kind of a leader is it 
who allows the global situation to fall to complete shambles and then says, now we need to fight a great war in order to rectify it. You think that a real leader would be someone that would have stopped problems before they became severe, not someone who served through the most horrifying war in human history and then in the end finally was able to come out on top. I've wondered if he if he was in better health, if he had maintained living, would he have run for a fifth term, a sixth? Apparently his health was, yeah, yeah, yeah. was like, just like, horrendous. Can, can, so. can, so anyway, he died only about a year into his fourth term, so we would have had him at least until 48, so he would have gotten to have his influence in the post-war era as well. Yeah. And yeah, like, why, why, like, everything in his character says he would have done uh, served for a fifth term. Sure. Uh, you have a kind of depressing article in here, Monopolize the Pretty Lies, where you seem to question the value of telling the truth. And for such an outspoken truth teller, it made me sad, but I, but I felt fairly convinced. Can you, can you talk about what you mean by the pretty lies? So here's the question. What is the point of censorship? Why does a dictator most obviously want to crush all voices of dissent? Our instinctive reaction is normally to say, well, the truth is against the dictator. The dictator knows that if people can say what's actually happening, that this will make the people turn against the dictator. And so the dictator has to go and stamp out the truth. All right. And that's not totally wrong. But if you're paying more attention to what opposition figures are saying, usually what they're saying is not all that true either. Instead, normally there is a typical bid for power, a demagogic appeal to switch power from the current leader to some new leadership. And what the demagogues say is usually false as well, right? This is easiest to see in a country like Saudi Arabia. If you wanted to take over Saudi Arabia from the House of Saud, what would you say? Would you start making a bunch of calm, reasonable claims about how, well, this is a brutal dictatorship. They are enforcing this, <laughs> the long outmoded, if ever moded tenets of a medieval religion on an entire population, Maybe that if we were to go and replace them, we could go and raise living standards of Saudi citizens by 5%, right? Is that what you would say if you wanted to gain power? I don't think so. Instead, you would say, you know, Allah himself despises the house of Saud. He says, give power to us. We are the ones that are anointed by Allah. Let us go and wage jihad against this house of Saud. We will hack off their heads and then we will go and deliver a truly pure theocracy for Saudi Arabia. That's the kind of thing that you would say if you wanted to gain power in Saudi Arabia. And I say it's very similar in most countries. If you want to gain power, you don't go and give a calm, reasonable alternative to what the government is saying. Instead, you give an alternative, often even crazier story about what you would do. Why? Because if you want to win over popular support, just telling the truth doesn't sound all that good. What you want to say is, is to offer a utopia to people to say things are going to be great if only you give us power. And, and the main thing that dictators are worried about is that someone else is going to start lying as ridiculously as they do and can get away with it. And that's why I say that the main thing dictators really want to do is to crush rival demagogues. Say, so look, we and we alone get to use this kind of of radioactive language, or we will have a monopoly on this because we know how dangerous it is and how potent it is. And, and that's why I call that chapter Monopolize the Pretty Lies. I say that what censorship is primarily about is letting the people in power be the only person that get to publicly say absurd things, and therefore the only people that are able to use this most potent rhetorical weapon for gaining and holding power.
the way you just put it is a little less sad than I re- had remembered it because you're, you're framing it like telling the truth is not useful for getting into power or for challenging the existing power structure so that you could get into power, but it might still be useful for shifting the, you know, window of what's acceptable by, I don't know, chipping, chipping away at the acceptability of how badly they can lie. Yeah, that's that's reasonable. You know, so again, it's not that there's no value in being able to say, "Hey, wait a second, it was the Soviet Union, not the Nazis, who murdered all those Polish soldiers in Cotton Forest," and uh, uh, that was one of the long-running lies of the Soviet government. And finally, under Gorbachev, they said, "Oh yeah, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, it was actually us that killed all those Polish soldiers. Uh, we've been lying for all these years." And so yeah, so chipping away at the lies of the regime, there's some value in that, but. It's not the kind of thing that radically sways public opinion compared to just unleashing your full gut, <laughs> to unleashing your, the full range of, of, of emotions and wild promises and claims, uh, which is what people really do when they want to gain power. You know, if you just think about the revolutions, like how many revolutions are fought just by going and stating some obvious truths rather than by making some extravagant hyperbolic claims. Right? Like almost every revolution, you need a pile of hyperbole. That's what people know they need to do in order to win. And that's what censors know they have to crush in order to stay on top. It's much more inspiring. You have an article where you you give kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, advice about giving telling some pretty little lies. And you give four four steps for how to uh, demonize an outgroup successfully. Can you Can you say a little bit about those? Let's see. I'm not sure that I remember the four steps perfectly, but I believe it's roughly along the lines of... List as many negatives as possible was the step one. Yes, yes. So if there's a group that you you don't like, just start with the machine gun of negatives. You don't need to, you don't need to get to give number. Don't bother with numbers. You don't have to flesh things out a lot. Just start complaining about whatever group that you don't like. So, you know, like if you want to demonize nerds to say, oh, yeah, well, like these nerds, like all they want, all you know, all they really like is video games and they wear really bad glasses and they laugh funny and just start going down that list. Right. And, you know, don't give people a chance to even think about, well, wait, was complaint seven even true? Just you have a long list. Right. And then I think I don't bother giving any numbers. Numbers just bore people. Just you know, complain as much as possible. I think another one was turn every positive into a negative, right? So yes. if there's a group, if there, yes, if there's a group that is that, that is frugal, call them cheap, right? If there if there's a group that is hardworking, say oh they're they're just helots. I feel you know, like like when, like when debating immigration with people, like one thing people say oh they're all on welfare, they're lazy. Yeah, actually, you know, illegal immigrants have the highest rate of labor force participation of any known demographic. It's like oh well, that's because they're a bunch of helots. You know, like you know, like all they do is work, and like, like you know they like they they're, they're not human; they're robots. Normal so like, Americans what, what, can't compete with these people, Brian. Yeah, like, yeah. How, like, 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 so, like, how are we supposed to have a job with someone who all they're, they're, they're happy to work 70 hours a week? It's like, wait, 20 seconds ago, you're saying that they're lazy. Now you're saying they work 70 hours a week. It's like, look, consistency is not important. Just get the, just unleash your gut of it, your gut of anger and, and, you know, and just when you maintain the floor, it's sort of like a filibuster. <laughs> yeah, scope. It seems like scope is not important. It's it's a uh, what's the na- what's the cognitive bias where um, the the uh, availability heuristic. As long as as long as you can come up with a decent quick list of bad things, that matters a lot more than the the details or the 
the scope of how bad there's they actually, are. There's actually, there's actually a more specific psychological, psychological concept. Throwing a blank on it. Basically, there's these experiments where they ask people about their willingness to save like a million seagulls or a billion seagulls. Scope and, and sensitivity. Is, oh, yeah, 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 scope and sensitivity. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is a big part of demonizing a group. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter what the numbers are. Just, you know, just tap into one negative emotion after another and just try to you know, turn the crank, turn the crank, keep people at a level of, of, of at a level of constant rage. I mean, you can really see this if you go to the websites for anti-immigration think tanks and you just see like every day, it's just another 10 horrible stories about immigrants. They could be everything from, you know, new study says that they are costing us you know, a trillion dollars a year to one immigrant hit someone else with his car and then the person lost his foot. You know, like it could just be like, like just like, like anything at all, just you know, 10 negative stories about immigrants, regardless of their severity, regardless of whether they're on point, just keep the anger flowing. This is what you do if you want to demonize someone or if you have some group. That's great. Bad advice. Do you have a do you have a favorite essay in this collection? Yeah, that monopolize the pretty lies might be it. But uh, you know, it's hard to choose among your children. <laughs> I really yes. liked the the banality of Leninism. Oh yes, yes, banality of Leninism. Yes, that one was a lot of fun. So you know, Vladimir Lenin, first dictator of the Soviet Union. So many people you know consider him to be just a great intellectual. I say, well, look, yeah, you know, so, you know, but, yeah, but then you know, most things say, yeah, he's not really a great intellectual, but you know, he is a great theorist of uh, you know, a great theorist of how to actually gain power in, in Marxism and you know, and just you know, like the general strategy of revolution. What I say is, look, like he's not even very original there because the central ideas of let's go and fight a blood-soaked revolution in order to gain power and fix the world, those are actually you know, so well-established in the Russian revolutionary tradition. So I have a bunch of quotes from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment from you know, decades before Lenin's birth. Right. And in these, uh, there's uh, Raskolnikov is talking to you know, who's the anti-hero of the story. He's the one who murders the old woman with, with an axe in order to prove that he's not bound by normal, normal moral law. But anyway, after the murder, he's talking to a cop and sharing his, his philosophy. And when you read it, it comes down to this long belaboring of, look, if you go and save a billion people by hacking up one woman with an axe, you'd do it, Right. 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 And, you know, lovingly detailing this, uh, the, the, like how you know, I believe that a great man would pick up that axe and hack away. It would be so good. Like, like, and, and who are we to judge such a man who would go and murder a so-called innocent woman when there's the great fate of humanity is at stake? And then there's almost nothing establishing there's any causal connection between murdering this poor woman with an axe and helping the world at all. And then it's a, see, it's very much part of this Russian revolutionary tradition to glorify violence in the name of the greater betterment of society, but with almost no attention to paid to whether, in fact, the violence is making things better at all, much less whether it justifies the horrible things that you're doing. This is another so example that, of something you've you've talked about. I don't recall if it's in this collection or not, but and another cognitive bias where you're you're substituting an easier question for a harder question and answering that like the easier it's relatively easy question to answer. Is there ever a conceivable circumstance when you might be morally justified to murder an innocent person? And sure, you can come up with 
a million implausible scenarios and maybe scour the world for a real historical scenario. But these scenarios don't just come up all the time. And the people who bring it up are probably saying it because they're about to do something horrible. Yeah, they're sociopaths. So I see, you know, like, like, you, like the philosophy that that's, uh, that Lenin embraces morally was really just the same as utilitarianism. It's very much like what John Stuart Mill taught. Uh, but there's one difference. They say, you know, a normal utilitarian, when they go through all the math and it turns out that, it, it, that it's justified or morally required to, do, to go and murder us in a person, so they check their work, right? There's like, well, do we really have to do this? Is there some other way? Isn't there a more humane way? And they, and they, they you know, they, we, they go over the math multiple times and they say, gee, we really don't want to just go and murder this poor innocent woman. Isn't there something else we could possibly do? And then if at the end, after going after a lot of intellectual scrutiny, it turns out, no, gee, it's like, all right, Cal, I guess we have to do it. Whereas someone like Lenin goes from the mere possibility, and then as soon as they get to the answer of mass murder, then it's more like, woohoo, that's what we wanted to do in the first place. There's probably saying, already some enemies that he felt needed to yeah, be mass yeah. murdered. Oh, 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 isn't it great? It turns out the best way to, to help society is to murder everyone that we don't like and to put ourselves in charge as dictators for life. Oh, what a great, what a, what a, what a interesting coincidence. So yeah, so you know, while Lenin, you know, like I would put him in the utilitarian camp, but I would not tar him, tar, tar all utilitarians by any means with being like him. So like a normal utilitarian is a quantitative person who doesn't want to do bad things, and then occasionally will say, "Oh God, like it looks like we have to." Whereas people in this Marxist-Leninist tradition, which is, of course, a much more intellectually influential intellectual tradition than, than utilitarianism ever was historically. Uh, they, on the other hand, are these really sociopaths who start with utilitarian philosophy, but really are working backwards from that to committing mass murder. Might not even be looking at the murder part as a cost. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so one of the early Bolsheviks, Novyev, had a public speech where he said, you know, like, like we're, we're, like, we're going to say, we're going to, you know, like, this is going to be great for, like, I don't remember, you know, like 150 million Russians, you know, 20 million, was pay, 20 million others are going to have to perish. All, you know, like, like, and I think his quote was something like, you know, like, all, what do we have to say to those 20 million? Like, like you know, too bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Another point against Lenin as a theorist, as a brilliant theorist, is he's, He's not even the socialist who really spearheaded the the idea of a vanguard party as opposed to the mass of the working people. I, I think that was a French socialist named Blanqui. That's what yeah, he's often there, very there, famous there's, there's, for. Yeah, there's, yeah. You know, so like in Russia, there was a previous guy named Nekiev who probably did have a lot of covert influence on Lenin. Oh, they don't think Lenin acknowledged it. But yes, so there was there, there was him. In terms of Lenin's reading, so you like definitely you know, like of course there's there's a Russian tradition, but also you know, German socialism probably would have more influence. So whether how much he he really knew, even knew about the French socialists, probably a little bit, but not too, so. I'm not, I'm hazy on how much he knew about. I feel uh, like I read at one know. point that he denied any connection there, or that he denied he was a a Blanquist or something because he, he's a very important man. He did it all himself. Lenin definitely gave Marx credit for the idea of the leadership of the proletariat and would have, I think, appropriately argued that the Vanguard Party is the natural implication of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Of course. Yes. It's just so, you know, like, between like, the lines. Like, 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 he, he was a loyal Marxist. I love, whatever else he was, he was that. 
It's probably easier to be loyal to someone who's dead if you're a demagogue. Very good. Very true, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> not, not too many orders to take, and you can kind of read between the lines if you need to. The common sense case for pacifism is a, uh, I, you know, a few essays I recall reading over over my life that that hit me like a ton of bricks, and that was one of them. I don't know if I read it exactly when you wrote it, which was like twelve years ago, but I was glad to see it in here again. I think it's very powerful. Can you say one what you mean by pacifism and why you're in favor of letting the Huns invade our land, and what's the common sense case for pacifism? There's absolute pacifism, which says I would not use violence even in self-defense, which is not my view at all. Then there is the other meaning of pacifism is this opposition to war, uh, which I do embrace right, as a strong moral presumption, not, abs- not as an absolute rule, but as a strong moral presumption. And the argument goes like this. First premise, modern wars are never actually defensive wars. Modern wars, due to the technology, almost always involve either deliberate mass murder of innocent people or at least negligent manslaughter of innocent people on the other side. So there's deliberately firebombing a city, murder, and then there is just using dropping a nuclear weapon on a military base, which you know is actually going to kill a vastly larger number of innocent people. That would probably get classified as manslaughter if you were doing it in court. So second premise is that uh, while these you know, short-run costs of war of uh, actually going, especially of murdering and manslaughtering innocent people, the short-run costs are very clear. But on the other hand, the long-run benefits of war, the improvement of the state of the world that people think justifies those short-run costs are actually, in fact, highly uncertain. Right, And here I do draw upon this empirical evidence from people like Philip Tetlock on how even experts are very bad at forecasting the effects of war. And, you know, like, you know, and I always tell people, if you doubt this, let's go and bet. Let's go and bet. Let's get a specific bet on exactly what will happen if we invade a country and we will see what happens. And, and also, give me I, I want odds, because if you think you really know, all, all I'm saying is that it's uncertain. If you to disagree with me, you have to say, no, it is highly certain. In that case, I deserve to receive favorable odds in the bet. And then the last premise is what philosophers sometimes call the force organ donation hypothetical. It's just a simple moral hypothetical that goes like this. You are a doctor. You have five patients. Each patient requires a different organ transplant. One needs a new set of lungs. One needs a heart. One needs two new kidneys, right? And so on. One needs a liver. All right. So you have five people that are going to die unless they get an organ. And then who walks by? A perfectly healthy guy with no family, no friends. All right. Is it morally all right to go and murder him to save those five people? Right. Almost everyone says no which I take to mean that while it may, might not be absolute, if it's a million people, or maybe, but five is not enough. So I say that, that there, there's this moral premise that before you go and start murdering or manslaughtering innocent people, it's not necessary just that there is an excess of benefits over costs. You have to have high confidence that there's a large excess of benefits over costs, right? You snap all these premises together, and I say this adds up to a very strong presumption in favor of pacifism, of not fighting wars, of avoiding wars, and yes, and you know, and you know, saying, well, look, is there some way that we can avoid this so that we don't start going and murdering or manslaughtering innocent people? So that's the heart of it. And again, like you know, the the really the quicker version is just to say, look, the short run costs of war are very clear, very large. The long run benefits are highly uncertain. 
And in order for war to be justified, you would have to know with confidence that the long-run benefits greatly exceeded the short-run costs. And we almost never have that knowledge. That's a great and succinct way of putting it. So your common sense case for pacifism, you acknowledge the possibility that some wars might in fact have long-term benefits that justify the cost. And you give us plausible examples, the Napoleonic Wars and World War II. Even even there, I sense maybe some hesitance. I, 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 I've always... Li- I'm trying to remember, did I say World War II or the Korean War? I think I said the Korean War. Did you not say World War II? Yes, I don't think I did say World War II because I think that's much more much more up in the air. I, I do too, and that's going to take away from what I'll, I'll say. I'll say it anyways. Imagining how bad things could have been needs to be weighed against the obvious consequences of World War II in terms of communist China and Soviet deaths that almost certainly wouldn't have happened, but for the particular way World War II played out. Um, but it sounds like. You're not disputing that, or I don't know if you'd put it a different yeah, way. I mean, we, we, we can still go over it if you want. You said the Korean War and possibly the Napoleonic Wars might might count as plausible candidates for wars that had long-run benefits that would justify the cause. Well, the, 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 the defeat of Napoleon specifically, the Napoleonic Wars includes <laughs> See. all the horrible stuff that led up to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, not the, Napoleon is really <laughs> what's crucial. But World War II is ambiguous enough. Can you say something about that? It's important to understand just how bad the the World War II turned out. So, you know, not only was half of Europe under Stalinist tyranny, uh, but at least there you could say, well, half wasn't. So that's a big improvement. But the other big consequence of World War II was that the communists took over China. Very unlikely they would have done so if not for the if, if not for the defeat of the Japanese in the Eastern Theater. Right. And if you compare the horrible way the Japanese ruled their territories to the unimaginably horrible way the communist Chinese ruled their territories, I think there's very little doubt that it would have been better if the Japanese had won over the communists. Um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek was horrible as well, but you know, anyone but the communists would likely would, would, have been, would, would have been preferable. And again, that's not just one country. That is the largest country on Earth. So in terms of the actual outcome for humanity of the of, of World War II, like, like you really do have to remember like how bad things turned out in the Eastern Theater. You know, the outcome, I mean, could have been even worse than that. In 1945, if you had asked people to guess, well, when's World War III going to happen? I think a lot of people would have said in the next 10 years. It's kind of amazing that World War III didn't happen. See, so that's sort of the one redeeming grace of the end of World War II is that so far... So far, mind you, we've avoided <laughs> World War III. Uh, you know, since I was just in Poland, you're def- definitely a little bit, hmm, uh, yeah, maybe World War III is coming. I think it's unlikely, but to say it's unlikely rather than just super unlikely is the kind of thing that's pretty terrifying, I mean, especially when you listen to the demagogues that are in power and hear what they have to say. There was just an uh, interview with the U.S. Secretary of Defense where he was asked, well, aren't you worried this, that this could provoke Russia into nuclear war? He said, well, it's important to remember the United States also has nuclear weapons, so you know, they have to be afraid of our deterrence. Like, oh, I didn't know that we had nuclear weapons. Oh, so I guess there's no, we can really just sleep well at night and stop worrying, knowing that we have a nuclear deterrent. Of course, of course. Thank you so much for clearing all that up. Right? I mean, it's just like it's such an asinine thing to say. It's as if Dr. Strangelove had never been filmed or something like that. Watched that movie again recently, and it's it's yeah. more relevant feeling than ever. 
I mean, the idea that, like, to me, what's amazing about Dr. Strangelove is they put this in movie theaters and people laughed at the time. It's so, like right around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you think it's like this hits too close to home. It was not intended to be a comedy. And partway through filming, Kubrick decided he changed it to be a black comedy rather than a drama. Arguably, it's George C. Scott's very best role, probably Patton's better, but that's definitely a strong number two in any case. Absolutely. Go on. You were talking about uh, the the consequences of World War II and just how bad it was, despite its reputation as the good war. Right. So, 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 yeah. So, I mean, again, like I'm not saying that it could that it couldn't have been worse if, uh, for example, the U.S. had stayed out of World War II or if Britain had made a separate peace with Hitler in 1940. What I'm saying is that it's highly uncertain that the actual outcome was better. And then per my common sense case for pacifism, it's not enough to go and and, and, and wage a bloody war just because you think that maybe this will make things better. You've got to do better than that. And if you're going to go and fight a modern war where you're murdering really millions of innocent people. And another right. piece of that story is, one, somebody might object that, well, almost any cost had to be borne to, to stop the Holocaust. It's common knowledge among people in the know that that never was the intent of what we did. And we didn't, and it wasn't fully stopped and opportunities were there to <laughs> mitigate it that weren't taken. And I think there's a growing consensus among historians that that was not his first choice and that the war virtually guaranteed the acceleration of the final solution. Uh, he was never planning on doing anything kind with German Jews, but... Well, I mean, of course, it's not mostly German Jews. It's Eastern European Jews that are the primary victims of the Holocaust. There were hardly, there weren't very many German Jews. I think they're only 2% of the population in Germany. Yeah, that's uh, right. At, 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 the, at least before Germany's borders expanded to Austria. I think that probably gave them a large number. I mean, so the main thing to understand is... You know, there, there was horrible mass murder in the Soviet Union, in the Soviet bloc countries, but especially in China. You know, so you know, the the multiple mass murders that happened in communist China, like you know, com uh, estimates of the, those death tolls easily come out to ten times what the Holocaust was. So you know, if you like, you really think that a world war was justified to stop the Holocaust, then well, World War Three seems like it would have been justified to have stopped the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, as well as multiple other so multiple other <laughs> mass murders that went that went on under Mao's rule. You know, you, know, you even remember like when, like when I was in maybe junior high, we were we were given this reading about the communists showing up at some village in China and saying, "Hand over your money lenders and landlords," and then the whole village goes and they, they then there's a public execution where they go and denounce them. And then just to realize, well, so you know, like these moneylenders and landlords, they were a couple percent of the population of China and all over China, Mao sent out quotas, every village, let's go and execute a certain percentage of the people there as landlords and moneylenders. And you multiply that percent by the population of China and you just, oh my God, that by itself, we're talking about 6 million people at least. I didn't know that specific part. Right. And it's like, well, and you know, even in the U.S., the tone of this piece is, well, it might seem harsh, but they were moneylenders and landlords after all. After all, <laughs> they lent money, Brian. <laughs> yes. And it's like, look, look, like, so this kid's dad is a banker. Can we, can we go murder his dad? Is that OK? This you know, Brian's dad owns a rental property. Can we go and murder Brian's dad for having a rental property? So like just the way that even in the U.S. people would go and accept these absurd rationales for mass murder really, really was stunning to me. Well, uh, not at the time, but in, in hindsight, it was stunning to me. 
Let's stay with World War II. So you have a you have another essay where you talk about Hitler's stated reasons for invading countries and how he he briefly considered alternatives to war and invasion, but swept them away as out of hand, probably because considering them in the first place was never really sincere. Can you talk about what his motivations were and what uh, alternatives he considered and dismissed? I wouldn't even so much call him uh, insincere as just impatient. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so here's the thing. All right. Hitler invaded a whole lot of countries. Right. And why? Well, what was the argument? You know, like, there was an argument. And actually, there was. So there's a chapter in Mein Kampf where he explains why it is that he's going to go and invade other countries and the specific ones that he's going to invade. Right. It all starts off with a Malthusian premise. Germany does not have enough land to feed his people, which is self-inspired by the economic blockade of Germany in the, uh, in the last phase of World War I, as well as actually for cons- a considerable time after, after the armistice where food has been cut off from Germany and they actually had a quite severe famine, right? So, you know, Hitler is talking to an audience that remembers this horrible famine at the end of the war. And he's saying, look, Germany obviously doesn't have enough food in order to feed his people. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he says, okay, well, there's a few options. One is to improve our agricultural productivity. And he says, all right, well, that can be done within some modest limits, but it's not realistic for that to actually be our solution. All right, then we could go and specialize in manufacturing goods and then trade those to other countries in order to go and get food. And he says, no, that's not very realistic either. This trade is not going to work out. He says, then we could limit our numbers, right? We could use birth control and that kind of thing. And he says, no, no, that's not going to work because the country that limits its numbers is a smaller population. The country with a smaller population is just going to be bullied or conquered by neighboring countries with larger populations. So no go. Because then we could go and get foreign colonies. And he says, no, but there's two problems with foreign colonies. First of all, the climate is not good for Germans. <laughs> right? And second of all, he says that all these all potential colonies are now currently or, or, or virtually all foreign, you know, desirable foreign, foreign territories are already controlled by some European country. So in order to get them, you would have to go and attack a European country anyway. He says, so therefore, why not go and cut out the middleman and just attack European countries directly and seize their territory right here, right now. We like the climate, it's close by. And that's, of course, exactly what he did. Let's go and attack the East. Let's go and grab their land, enslave them, or you know, murder them or expel them. And then we'll farm that land and that's how we'll get our food. And so you know, Hitler said all this in Mein Kampf, which, uh, which really actually, as it turns out, did very closely predict what he did. There were a lot of people who for years saying, well, this is just like the his ravings for his fanatical followers. Like, no, he is the leader of the fanatics. He is chief fanatic or was chief fanatic. And again, I say, and then the last thing I say is the irony of all of this is that the end of World War II meant that you had a, a, a even less land. For, you know, Germany lost a lot of land. I think actually their, their population density went up because there were so many ethnic Germans that got expelled from all over Eastern Europe, especially, and wound up settling in the new, much smaller Germany. And then what happened, particularly to West Germany, right? Well, how did we have West Germany? Did, were there any serious problems with hunger for West Germany after, like, you know, after the 1948? Anyway, there's a few terrible years, of course, at the very end of the war. Uh, no, actually, of course, Germans are having no trouble at all with getting food. And how do they do it? Well, they by doing the two things that Hitler said couldn't be done: by increasing agricultural productivity and by international trade. 
So yeah, the two things that he dismissed as being pie in the sky, unrealistic, were actually the only realistic path. They totally, they totally worked. And on the other hand, let's go and start a World War II in order to go and seize territory. You know, that turned out to be the cockamamie ridiculous plan that uh, he acted like was so realistic and hard-headed and was not, as we all know now. Well, commerce is wimpy and war is the, the fountain of all good things and... Standard demagogic thinking, like the glory of war, the wonder of war. You know, Dolce et decorum est. <laughs> <laughs> right, famous poem. Sweet, sweet, and sweet and glorious it is to die for your country. I was talking with John Mueller, the author of The Stupidity of War, and one of the things he documents in that book is how ubiquitous and easy it was prior to World War I to find people talking about the glories of war and how purifying it is and cleansing and great and all this stuff, and how after World War I, it, it becomes virtually impossible. And prior to then, it wasn't just Prussian militarist types. I'm it was. Uh, say that. Don't you mean that after World War II? No. Of course, there's a lot of people talking about how great war was uh, in the interwar period, starting with Hitler. I, that was surprising to me. He did. He, so talking to him, his claim was that after World War One, essentially nobody wanted war except for Hitler <laughs> and that he was uh, a, a very successful. And I, I don't know if he's right about that. I, I'm taking him as at, at his word. He wrote the book. But that, I, mean, I, I can believe that there's a, a, a big increase in the variance and there are more people saying war is terrible after World War I, but you also have a very strong chunk of people saying, no, no, no we got it right the first time, you know, st- starting with Hitler, most obviously. But um, you know, like, you know, like the Soviet Union, there's an you know, enormous amount of the glorification of war in the Soviet Union. You can go and watch Soviet movies uh, from the 30s to see how, like, you know, like uh, you know, Alexander Nevsky, for example, or uh, Ivan, you know, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, these are the uh, famous Eisenstein movies that Stalin greenlit, right? And you watch those, and yeah, like again, like great glorification of war there. Of course, uh, Italian fascism, lots of glorification of war. So I'm puzzled by that Mueller would say that. I'll look. I'll look into maybe what the uh, what the specifics of the claim was. It might have been more oh, more Japan. limited than what yeah, I just to, said. To say that Japan, that no one in Japan talked about the glory of war in between the interwar period. No way. Like there's like that's, yeah. All, this all these whole idea. Counter examples sound obvious. You know, like every colonial liberation movement glorifies war, of course. Every colonial, every clo- colonial quote unquote liberation movement has to glorify war because, you know, Civil, Fanon, civil war you know, or international war? Ah, well, well yeah, <laughs> you know, we don't need to be all that specific, do we? Not that there's a big moral difference. I think his thesis was specific to international war and maybe to maybe uh, to Western Europe. I mean, you know, I mean, here's the thing about a, a colonial liberation movement. To outsiders, it's a civil war. But to insiders, it's an international war because Algeria is already a separate country from France. We are right, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever read, since he wrote a lot about World War II in this, have you read um, A.J.P. Taylor's Origins of the Second World War or have any thoughts on his heterodoxy? I did read that about 20 years ago. You know, my, final, my final view of that book is that it is sort of a fairly ridiculous apology for Hitler. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who seemingly unfairly tarred him with that, but ultimately I think that it's not, that, 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 that uh, Hitler really does stand out as being an unusually, an unusually warmongering political leader by the standards of any time, 
Right? And the pretexts that on, on which he fights wars are so flimsy compared even to what was done in earlier decades. And for Taylor to try to assimilate him and say, no, he was just like a regular strong national leader of a kind that was accepted for decades. I think Taylor made a big mistake there. I had read that he he never that he never read Mein Kampf writing the book. Um, hard to believe. Uh, it I mean, is hard I, I, I to believe pos- because he's possible. not he's well, not like, a, like, like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not a fringe historian. Uh, no, not at all. So I very much doubt that he didn't read it. I think he was probably uh, more among the people who just said, well. You know, like this is just the Bible written for his inner party fanatics. He doesn't really believe himself. But then once you know that the Holocaust happened, you say, oh, it doesn't seem like it, was, it seems like he was the chief fanatic. Of course. I mean, I mean, especially like, I mean, I do think that it's true that there are many people in like in high up in the Nazi party who wanted to basically at minimum take a breather after they managed to get Czechoslovakia. Right. Or really just declare victory and say, look, like we got what we wanted. We don't we don't want to push our luck here. You know, very, very striking. So, you know, like, you know, at the very beginning of World War II, seems that you know, like, the, the, like you know, Berlin was supposed to be eerily quiet. The popular, like, even Germans are like, okay, gee, like, like everything's going so well, and now we're we're going to go and actually you know, fight a major war and see what happens. Like, like, why? You know, boom. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think this was this was a case where Hitler was well ahead of most of even his more fanatical followers in being the chief warmonger. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm competent to judge it. I, I read, I read yeah. the origins of the second world war some years ago too. feel like puzzled as to how to think about it. What you said sounds right to me, which is more in line with the, the consensus that Mein Kampf really does come true more or less, or at least, uh, effort efforts yeah. to, to make yeah. it come true. Right. And, and again, just the, like, like, if you know, the, like there were some major orders that were not entirely followed or they were changed. But like, like, you know, like the original German war plan was just to take away the food of the population of Eastern Europe and, and starve them to death, figuring that, well, who needs them anyway? We're going to win this war in a year. And the decision to actually even issue rations to the populations of the conquered territories really comes down to, oh, the war's going to last too long, longer than we thought. So I guess we need them alive. Right. And like, <laughs> like, you know, to have actual documents of here's our war plan. We take all the food away from the population of the countries we're conquering. Like to have that, it's like, oh my God, like what kind of, of homicidal maniacs are running this country? It's like, yeah, well, uh, they're the Nazis. They're called the Nazis, dude. <laughs> so, and there's another example. Yeah. We, you were talking about uh, Lenin's crude and, and hasty utilitarianism where it sounds like, and you quote, I think you quote Himmler. It sounds like they're not even consider that the, the debts of these people are not even on the cost side of the ledger. This is, yes, yes. This is yes. just some more work to be done. Yeah, Except insofar so far as it's a burden to the Germans who have to kill them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. The poor Germans were sent, we're sensitive people. We don't want to have to murder these people. Why do they have to be there rudely kind of breathing our air? Like, like, you know, if, if they just had the decency to never been born, then we wouldn't have to have this blood on our hands. The jerks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's uh, the, the, the flavor of, of Heinrich Himmler. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the um, the essay you have where you compare the, or you, you're asking about the relevant moral distinctions between the My Lai Massacre and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you list some plausible candidates and find them coming up wanting? Yeah, so... Probably everyone listening is familiar with the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you know the arguments that people give in their favor, saying, well, you know, 
saved saved a lot of innocent saved a lot of American lives by doing it. Sure, we went and murdered a whole bunch of people. I doubt you know, there, there, you know there, there is the story which many people have of like, well, they're not really innocent. You know, the Japanese weren't innocent because it's their fault. There was the wars. Like, well, you know, the guy who uh, cleaned the toilets in Japan, he was responsible for World War II. He was part of the planning. Or again, if you're going to blame him, right, how about that guy's baby? Uh, the guy's baby is to blame for, <laughs> for for the attack on Pearl Harbor. Like you're like that doesn't make any sense. If there was a serial killer with a baby, would you go and put the baby in the gas chamber with him and say, yeah, well, you we should have figured out some way of stopping your dad from killing all those people, kid. Right? Pretty crazy. All right. So anyway, this is the background. Now, the Miley Massacre, this is one of the most famous American war crimes in Vietnam. You can get a good version of it in Mike Humor's The Problem of Political Authority. But basically, it seems like you know, order was given to go and massacre every living person in this village in Vietnam. Right? And then uh, there was actually one heroic American who went and saved some of the people and then reported what happened to the world. And so this is how people found out about it. Right? But anyway, the kinds of things that you might say is, well, look, was this justified? Almost everyone wants to say that my lay was not justified. And it's like, well, why do you kill all those people? Well, there were guerrillas that were you know, mingled among the population. So the only way to be sure you were killing all the guerrillas was to kill everybody there. And it's like, all right, hmm. All right, so then you get to kill an entire population. And then there's, well, what about killing the babies? Well, let's say, you know, the, the, village, the whole village is guilty for this. They brought this on themselves. So we're going to have to go and do this. And then, of course, you could just say, well, the difference was that Hiroshima and Nagasaki really did end World War II, and Miley did not end the Vietnam War. And to that, I say, well, suppose we could have just done a thousand Miley massacres, and that would have ended the war. Then would it have been okay? You know, at minimum, it's a, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. I think almost anyone would really have to say, uh, yeah, like we go and we just murder a thousand villages in Vietnam, and then we get victory out of that. Is that morally acceptable to do? Right. But I mean, really, really, I say that the arguments for the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki really are very similar to those. Uh, didn't I, I think I've read that North Vietnam, though, specifically is maybe unique in in military history for the level of casualties it was willing to tolerate without losing soldier morale. Perhaps uh, my laying all the way through wouldn't have done it anyway. Well, of course, there's also the slave labor camp or worse for anyone that doesn't go along with it. So, uh, I mean, but somebody's got to like, enforce those slave labor yeah, camps. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, like this, this is, you know, you know, cla- you know, classic vanguard party stuff. You have a tiny core of fanatics who then have their guns pointed at a broader core of semi fanatics who have their guns pointed at a often apathetic population, right? Just to understand what's really going on it's uh, and the, you know, the vanguard parties are very good at, at t- turning a very small number of fanatics into total control over a country that's you know you give them credit so they've, they've got a lot of success along those lines would you ever consider writing an original book rather than a collection related to war or foreign policy a few books down my queue of books there's one called I believe, yeah, so I believe yeah, so I believe yeah, I believe the title of the book is uh, pragmatic pacifism Pragmatic pacifism is one of the sections in in this book, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I believe that. Yes, yeah, so I believe that is the planned title of a book on you know, basically fleshing out this common sense case for pacifism to a uh, book length. 
So based upon the current queue, maybe 10 years from now, I, I, could, <laughs> tell you that I, I could be, I could be working on that book. It's worth I the don't, wait. Yeah. So yeah, the, you know, that definitely is one that I am, uh, the, the, that, 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 that is on the agenda. I think I do have something unusual to say about it. You know, my long-run plan is to do that. Absolutely. What is the next essay collection that you have planned? I know you're you're in the pro. You just mentioned your queue, and I know you've got a ton of books waiting to be published. But what's the next collection of blog posts to be published? Essays, Chris. Essays. 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 essays sounds much better than posts. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there are two that are going right now, but probably the one that's going to come out first is called "Don't Be a Feminist: Essays on Genuine Justice." This is actually the only one of these books that will uh, feature a totally new essay, which is uh, the, the title essay of the book is Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. I've been thinking about these issues for a long time. And I, I, so I, I blogged it a little bit, but I really wanted to get my thoughts all down in one place. And again, the way that I describe it, my daughter is only 10, so she's actually too young to read the essay. But what I say in the essay is I want the essay to be ready for her the day she asks. So I want it to be on tap. Another provocative title. Uh, I, I, it's been said that feminism is the radical idea that women are people. So I take it you're going to be arguing the contrary in this book. Right. I mean, I, I say that's a lot like calling the newspaper Pravda. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, the newspaper's truth. Are you against truth? No. Well, then you must support Pravda, whatever we say. So I, you know, like, you know the essay starts with, well, what is feminism anyway? Well, there's some interesting public opinion work on this. And the, now the public opinion does not actually ask the question, are women people? <laughs> but it does have the question, should women you know, be treated equally socially, economically, and politically? And about, I think about 95% of non-feminists say yes, which says that it is not actually a view distinct to feminism that women should be treated, uh, women, men and women should be treated equally. This is actually a view held by almost everybody in the United States and probably almost every Western society. So therefore, it is just ridiculous propaganda to claim that this is what distinguishes feminism from other views. It's like saying feminist, feminism is theory, the sky is blue. All right, look, I believe that you believe the sky is blue, but guess what? The people that you don't like also believe the sky is blue. So why don't you stop libeling people that you disagree with and actually say what really distinguishes your view from that of other people? So what I suggest a much better definition of feminism is, is that is the view that society treats women less fairly than men. It's the view that society treats women less fairly than men. And I say this is actually a view that, that distinguishes feminism, feminists from non-feminists. Because if you ask feminists, you know, does society treat women less fairly than men? I am confident you will get at least 90%, probably more like 98% saying, yes, of course. How could you even ask that? And on the other hand, if you go to your non-feminists, I'd ask them, does society treat women less fairly than men? This is where people say that they are not feminists are either going to say no, or it's like, oh, it's complicated. I don't know, maybe. All right. So I said that is really the distinguishing idea of feminism is that our society treats women less fairly than men. And then what I do in this essay is say, well, is that actually true? So I go and I list all of the standard feminist complaints about how women are treated poorly, how, how women make less money than men, about women are given an unfair, or you know, are given most of the responsibility for housework and childcare. Go through, I list all of those. And I say, all right, so let's, we have all those. Now let's go and make a list of all the ways that you might think the society treats men less fairly than women. And there's also a very standard list here. 
everything from you know, men are much more likely to be the victims of violent crime. Men are the only ones that get conscripted. Men receive poor treatment in custody cases. You know, men, men do almost all of the really hard and dirty jobs in every known society. You know, men are, or men are you know, at least 90% of all the workplace fatalities, right? So you go through all of those. And you say, now we've got two lists. We have a list of all the ways that women are treated, or at least possibly treated less fairly than men, but we also have a list of all the ways that men are treated less fairly than women. At this point, it's like, hmm, well, at least it's no longer all that obvious that our society treats women less fairly than men overall. But then I say that, you know, just coming up with the list isn't adequate. You've got to consider the possibility that the differences are not driven by unfairness, but by actual changes in behavior or performance of the different genders. So it's pretty obvious in the case of men, you can say that you know, over 90% of all the people in jail are men. Saying, like, hmm, well, is that just because society woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day and said, I hate men, let's put a lot of them in prison, right? Or is it rather that men commit a lot more crime? And yeah, obviously the second story makes a whole lot more sense. There may be some 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 marginal unfairness towards males in the criminal justice system, but overwhelmingly the reason why men are so imprisoned is because of worse male behavior, right? And I think almost any person could agree that, that that is true. And I say, well, how about on the side of alleged unfairness against women? You know, are there is there any way to explain these without reference to unfairness? Uh, so as an economist, I spent spent a lot of time focusing on differences in income and career success. And there I say, yes, there's actually excellent explanations for why women generally earn less money than men that have nothing to do with unfairness, that rather about things like women are much less likely to do STEM. Women are much less interested in quantitative fields, quantitative fields of higher productivity. So yes, they make more money, they make less money because they are choosing to study fields that they know are less lucrative because they are less productive for society, right? And and that isn't to criticize them, but to say, well, look, if you make a choice to do something that is more rewarding for you, that is less helpful for society, then of course you're going to make less money. And it's not reasonable to go and say that society is being unfair to you because of that. Right. And then the rest of the essay just spends a lot of time going over this list and considering explanations other than unfairness for what's going on. And then at the end, I say, all right, so we do have some cases where, like, I don't think that there is a good such explanation, but then in terms of where the balance lies, I say really what's in my mind, you know, tips the scale most is just the degree of unfair accusations against men as being very unfair. I say, look, you know, like without those accusations, then at least it's a close call about which gender is treated more unfairly by society. But when you realize that we do live in a society where it is totally acceptable for women to very loudly make sweeping collective complaints against men and where it is not acceptable for men to publicly do that about women. That, I say, is what really tips the scale and says not enough. You know, feminism is actually false. Our society actually does treat men less fairly than women overall. So you know, the piece also says, look, there's some other societies that are different. So I said in Saudi Arabia, I would be a feminist. Saudi Arabia really does treat women less fairly than men. I think the case is very strong. But what does that have to do with our society? Well, I will certainly reach out to you and uh, harass you to talk about yes. that book when it comes out. Right, right. By the way, the subtitle essays on genuine justice. This is genuine justice as opposed to social justice. So most of the essays in this book have something you know, or you know, some connection to what people call the social justice or woke movement. So you know, there's an essay on what I call the 
uniformity and exclusion movement, as I say, you know, contrary to the official propaganda, the woke movement is not really about diversity or inclusion. It is about uniformity and exclusion, you know, combined with intimidation to make sure that people don't go and point out this obvious fact. And a serious lack of humility. On a purely yeah, stylistic yeah. level, that's 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 an element of of social justice activism that always has rubbed me the wrrong way is uh, ex- just extreme arrogance. Honestly, also really like so like whenever people mention lack of humility, I always have a joke where I just ah well you can't blame someone for that. I mean like I would I like I would fault much more for lack of a sense of humor. You know like I can handle arrogance as long as it's a got a, as long as it's arrogance with a good sense of humor. But so yes, the the humorless person. This is the person that if I. If you can be self-deprecating while you're arrogant, yeah, I agree. <laughs> any, 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 any person good enough to be arrogant is good enough to self-deprecate <laughs> with great aplomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, for this book, um, "How Evil Are Politicians," do you have any book recommendations that you think would complement this book very well? First of all, there are two great books by political psychologist Phil Tetlock. So there is his expert political judgment: How good is it? How can we know? And there's also super forecasting. Uh, so I think the, uh, those are two great books just for understanding the contrast between actual objective thinking about politics versus the power-hungry production of lies to gain power. So those are, you know, like in a way, those are some of the best at the meta level for just understanding where I'm coming from. They're really in good. I, of- I've read both of those books, and, and I, I think on your recommendation sometime years ago. <laughs> Let's see. There's a great book by Stanley Payne called History of Fascism that really goes over international fascism. Of course, it does Nazism, Italian fascism, but it gives a good review of copycat movements all over the world. Just to understand what these are about. There's also, you know, there's so many great books about the history of communism. An old one, so like, you know, some of the facts are going to be out of date, or like now we've got archives, so we'll see that he wasn't right about everything. But still. Book that I like very much is one called World Communism by Franz Borkenau. Another one that's uh, very fun. The authenticity of this book is disputed, but there was a uh, a dissident Nazi who left the party named Hermann Rauschening. I think he was the head of the Danzig Party, and he wrote a whole book where he claimed was his con- his personal conversations with Hitler. I think it's yeah, I think it's just called Hitler Speaks. It's the book's called Hitler Speaks. There are some people who say Rauschening made it up. I don't know, like the book, to me, it just rings so true. And it's like, well, how do they know he made it up? (laughs) You know, like there's the famous uh, Roman historian Suetonius. A lot of people say he made it up. And I'm like, well, like, like, how do you know he made it up? I don't know. Sounds pretty good to me. Like, like, all right, I guess he probably wasn't there while Tiberius tortured children. But just guess go and say that it was a fabrication seems kind of unfair. You'll say, I don't know, maybe. Uh, So, yeah, those are those are all good just for understanding demagoguery. I mean, honestly, if you really want to understand the mind of a demagogue, Mein Kampf is a, is a very interesting read. Uh, yes. Yeah, so people will take this out of context and say, oh, Brian Kaplan is, is praising Mein Kampf. You know, well, it's you know, very interesting for historical understanding. And just, and just to realize that just because it's an evil book doesn't mean you can't learn a lot from it. You can. Well, I'll put all of these on the yeah, show yeah. notes page, possibly mm-hmm. accepting Mein Kampf. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I'll write it, but not link to it. I, I don't know. Uh, let's see how, that, how that, much that, controversy that, I want to court. Yeah. The mind of a monster, put it that way. The mind of a monster, to be clear. Can you say where people can find you if they want to follow what you're up to? So uh, they can buy the book on Amazon. Uh, it's just uh, $12 for the paperback, $9.99 for the ebook. And then I uh, blog for uh, Bet On It on Substack. 
last time you were on and you, and you are my first returning guest. You, it was just prior to you making your switch to Substack. I understand that's gone very mm-hmm. well. I'll, I'll also link oh, to yes. your blog and your Twitter and to uh, How Evil Are Politicians so that people can buy that as well. Always a great pleasure, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Brian. Enjoy your morning. Enjoy your time in Italy. That was Brian Kaplan, and his new book is How Evil Are Politicians? Essays in Demagoguery. You can purchase that book on Amazon, and you can also find links to that book as well as other topics discussed in today's episode on the show notes. If you're enjoying what I do here, please subscribe to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And please rate and review the show. It only takes a second, but it helps out tremendously. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. 